Last I spoke, we looked at Matthew 10, 28, in a sermon I titled, The Fearful Perspective. In that, I discussed the reality of hell and how often we place our fears in, in the wrong place. And I would somewhat like to revisit that. But in regards to, to fear and how it applies to our relationship with God, particularly the fear of God, the Austrian neurologist and founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, famously stated that God is a psychological crutch for the weak. And his argument went something like this. When we are a child, we have a, a father figure in our lives. And this father figure protects us, keeps us safe. But as we get older, we realize that realize the limitations of our earthly father. And we look out and we see the world and the dangers of this world. And in any moment, a, a hurricane, tornado, earthquake can, can end all. So in our subconscious, we, we, we start to develop a God, a, a, a divine heavenly father figure in which makes us feel safe, makes us feel comforted in a world that no one or nothing has control over. He went on to say that pagans did this in their culture. If you were someone who was always on the sea, you, you prayed to the god of the sea who had control over the sea and everything in it. There was a god for fertility. You know, if you were having trouble with children, you have a god who, who, who blessed you with fertility and gave you children. And he says in Christianity, we've just kind of rolled this all up into one big God. A God who, who, who gives, takes away all of our fears and makes us feel safe. In a world, like I said, that no one or nothing has can, any control over. It is a very sad reality how the church is moving away from the notion and teaching of our text today, which is the fear of the Lord. The justification of this removal, much like speaking on hell and sin, is that it may make people feel uncomfortable, uneasy, or even angry. Since one cannot escape or avoid the blatant and repeated phrase, the fear of the Lord in Scripture, it has unfortunately been downplayed and watered down to mean nothing more than just respect. And although it is true and goes without saying that one, especially a believer, should have respect for God, it is much more than that. There's much more and the implication of it. God is often displayed as a big teddy bear in the sky that is full of nothing but love and positivity. With the fear of the Lord absent from many churches today, it is obvious and without question it is absent from the world. I can't believe how many times in my line of work I meet with a lot of people and and. I hear about what church they go to and, and maybe what study they are in or study their church is doing and, and how they were raised. And then the next sentence, God's name is used in vain. 
Jesus' name is used as a curse word. When I was younger, and I'm so glad it's over with, but there was a, there was a f- pretty famous t-shirt and sticker phrase that was going around that had a cartoon depiction of Jesus with the phrase underneath it, Jesus is my homeboy. I remember when I was younger, uh, high school, senior year, I believe, I was at a fair and I saw a guy with a t-shirt that said, Jesus is coming. Don't worry, we'll nail him again. We've seen the bumper stickers on, on cars, Jesus is coming, look busy. And, and we see all these things that are you know, prevalent in our world, and we see just an absent fear of the Lord. But my issue that I'm having is that I, I see it also in the church. And when I talk, talked about hell, and I said, man, if, if Christians don't make a big deal of hell, if, we, we, if it doesn't compel us to evangelize, how do, we, how do we expect it to compel unbelievers? And in the same way, we shake our head at the world and say, man, what a, what a complete lack of, of reverence toward God and respect toward God, but how often does a church go irreverent when we talk and sing to this great God. The fear of God is inescapable in Scripture, so prominently and frequently used that I gave up trying to figure out how many times it's used in the Bible. I wanted to have a nice number, but I saw different numbers, and it just is overwhelming. The fear of God is essential in the life of a believer when it comes to knowing God. It goes hand in hand with his mercy. Luke 150, his mercies are for those who fear him from generation to generation. Hand in hand with his blessings, Psalm 112, 1, blessed is the man that fears the Lord. His loving kindness, Psalm 103:11. so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. This fear goes hand in hand and is in a fountain of life, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. With that said, it is essential for us to understand what it means to fear the Lord. And, and while his love his mercies and grace are, are, are vital and they are essential. It is essential for us, to, for believers, to not only start, but to grow, as we will see, in the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. First of all, let us begin with this word fear. Much like today's culture, the word fear can be used to describe anything that gives us the smallest anxiety to something that creates a paralyzing effect on us. The word here in Hebrew is the word, which I'm sure I'm going to not pronounce it right, yira. And there are likewise different instances and uses of this word in Scripture. It can be used with a feeling of unpleasantness or anxiety with regard to a punishment or pain to be experienced. Um, this is, I think, how we most commonly use it. I fear this, this operation coming up. I, I fear this uh, unexpected meeting with my boss. Um, I'm fearful of, of you know, this or that. Then there is an instance in which this word is used to describe a profound reverence. 
that comes from rightly seeing or experiencing something. Experiencing something that causes deep awe. This, in the Hebrew language, was the highest and most profound usage of this word or type of this fear. It is the most commonly used in regards to God and is the usage here in our passage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when you look at the word reverence, it, it is mean, basically, it just says to have a deep respect. And, and like I said, churches, some churches, not all churches, don't get me wrong, but we want to move away from the thing that makes people feel uncomfortable. We want to focus on what makes people feel comfortable as they sit in the pews in the seats out there. And, and this idea of the fear of the Lord, I remember when I was younger, I had trouble with this. What do you mean you're supposed to fear the Lord? Jesus says, come to the Lord. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who, who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. And, there's this idea of coming, you know, the prodigal son coming to his, the open arms of his loving father. And yet, here, we hear the words, the fear of the Lord. And not just once, but like I said, tons of times in Scripture, Old and New Testament. And like I said, the church sometimes, it's like almost like we get embarrassed. We, we hear this word fear, and we're, we're like... We're not talking about a legitimate fear here. We're talking about a, a respect. And, and I've heard that. I've heard that. That all it is is a respect. But when we look in Scripture, when we look at instances where man encounters the living God, we see a a fear that it's not just at that moment they say to themselves, I really need to muster up some respect here. Oh, man, okay, here's some respect coming. I feel respect boiling in me. And I look at that, and I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not sure about this whole, just, it, that it's just respect. Like I said, it, that goes without saying. Respect is going to come along with that. And I think of and I want to look at some of these instances. Um, actually, turn with me to, to the book of Job. Job uh, chapter 38. It's actually the book right before the book we're in now. Job chapter 38. The book of Job is a interesting, interesting book. We, um, we tend to boil Job down to devil says, oh, Job will curse you if you take all this away from him. So, you know, God says, go ahead, and Job takes it all away, or the devil takes it all away from Job, and, and Job never curses God, and then God blesses them with everything back and then some. And we boil it down to that. I mean, I remember when the first time I read Job, I said, 42, was it 42 chapters? 42 chapters. I thought this was about just a guy losing everything. 42 chapters, how much stuff did he have? 42 chapters. But it's a really, really, it's, I mean, it's a really a great book, poetic, and I mean, just, um, 
And just to give you an idea, uh, a couple of chapters, I think in chapter 36, you know, Job, it just kind of goes down a list, you know. You know, his wife tells him, just curse God and die. His friends are saying, dude, you did something. Look at what's happened. You, you've, you've got sin in your life. And Job just kind of, you know, like I said, don't get me wrong. Job does much better in this situation than I ever would, okay? Uh, but we tend to see Job as like, man, he never wavers. He never, man, never at all. But he does begin to kind of start to complain a little bit. He starts to whine a little, which I get, trust me, which is far less than I would do in his situation. I don't want to try to take away from Job. But I always had this idea, it's like, man, Job just never, ever, just was super strong the whole way. Like, Lord, trust is in you. But in chapter, I believe, chapter 36, he, he goes through the line of just sins, and he says, Lord, I mean, I, I made a covenant with my eyes that, that I wouldn't look on and lust, so I, I haven't done that. And, and he just goes out, and I mean, I, I didn't rejoice over my enemies falling. I, I didn't steal. I didn't, and just goes through a list, and he's pretty much saying, God, why? Give me an answer. Your silence is killing me. I'm paraphrasing. You owe me that, God. You owe me an answer. And of all the stuff that Job experiences, chapter 38, I believe, and I dare say, was the worst thing that Job experiences. Because in chapter 38, the title of it says, The Lord Answers Job. And I love these next couple chapters. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All right, dress, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You want to put me in the hot seat? Okay. Who stretched the line upon it and on it where its base sung? And, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He goes on throughout whole chapter 38 like this. And then on through chapter 39. And verse 40 or sorry, chapter 40, verse 3 through 5, Job says and answers to the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my, my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He says, Okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I regret asking. I'm sorry. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. He says, no, 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 no. You wanted me to answer you? Here I am. Get up. And he goes on all throughout chapter 40 and all through chapter 41. And, and what God is doing is just revealing himself to Job by his might, by his power, by what the things he has done, by his majesty, and then we see chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This whole dust and ashes image that we get is just the ultimate mournful, broken repentance that a man can do, a person can do in the Old Testament. Terrifying experience that Job has, and it, and it just completely obliterates him. But it, like I said, I wanted to see that God doesn't throw a lightning bolt at, at Job. All God does is speak to Job audibly. All God does is describe to Job who God is. And I want to look at another, let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 20. The giving of the law. In chapter 19, prior to this chapter, God's presence descends upon Mount Sinai. Verses 16 through 19 of, of chapter 19 says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on, on it in fire and smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln or an oven. And, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, answered him in thunder. I remember when I was uh, working at, at the warehouse in Stockton for my company, and uh, it's a couple of years ago, I've told the youth this story probably tons of times, but I remember... I was on the side of the building talk to, talking to a couple of the construction guys who were picking up some materials, and, um, and our building was next to another building that created this little pathway that cars can drive through and, and had parking there, but it, it made a corridor that echoed. I mean, echoed real, real well. And uh, it was in wintertime, and, and they were overcast, and it was starting to sprinkle a little bit. And... Um, me and these three, four guys, I don't know, grown men, construction guys, manly men, talking, and this thunder. And we didn't see any, I didn't see any lightning. No one saw any lightning. And usually, you know, when you hear thunder, and it's gotten that rolling thunder and builds up. But not this thunder. This thunder was a crashing thunder. And we're talking, and then boom! This thunder hits, and I'll never forget, and I was probably worst of them all, but all of us grown men go, what the heck? And I'm sure I was the one that was lowest, like, but I'm sure all the other guys do this, but I mean, we all just drop. Middle conversation, dead stop, drop, and cower. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, in the middle of a thunderstorm, and you've heard that thunder just 
it feels like it's not going to end. It sounds like it's not going to end. It just it rolls in and it gets louder and louder and, and it actually shakes your house. And it terrifies your dogs. And I can only imagine the voice of the Lord at this moment when the Israelites are standing before this great mountain filled with smoke and fire and it's shaking, a mountain shaking. You, you hear in the rocks shake off of it, shake loose, and, and God speaks, and this loud trumpet blast is, is going, and when God speaks, it's this, it's this crashing thunder that, that, that they can feel against them, just his voice, and, and I can only imagine that they're, they're standing there and just trembling in fear at the foot of this mountain. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder, verse 18 of, of uh, chapter 20, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now I ask you, does this, that does sound like, man, what a respect these guys had. They trembled in fear, and rightly so. When the prophet Habakkuk is complaining to God about his silence in the midst of evildoers, in the midst of his prayer, God speaks to Habakkuk, pronouncing a series of judgments. And afterward, Habakkuk writes of God in verse six, chapter 3, verse 16, I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness, Rottenness enters into my bone. My legs tremble beneath me. We see, the, we see this exact same fear in the New Testament with the disciples and Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And others' boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, when we read that, we can maybe look at Freud and say, oh, I can see what he's saying here. Here's this God who protected them in the midst of this storm. Here they are, just, just deathly afraid about everything on the outside of the boat crashing in, and, and their, their boat is sinking, and, and they think to themselves, we're going to sink. This boat is going down. We might die right now. This is it. And you look over, and and, and they see Jesus sleeping, and he gets up, and at the command of his voice, instantly the wind stops, and the waves calm. But here in the very next verse, it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this? And even the wind and the sea obey him. They were so afraid about everything on the outside. But great fear, it says great fear came upon them when they realized who was in the boat on the inside. Does this sound 
like the God that Sigmund Freud describes, a God that makes us feel warm and cuddly, a God that, that just makes us always feel safe. This is a God who, when encounters man, makes them tremble. And though God is, is good and gracious and a good, loving God, he is also, as Hebrews says, a consuming fire. C.S. Lewis understood this in his novel, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan about Aslan, the lion, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's a lion. No, no. He's, he's a lion. He's not safe, but he is good, and you can trust in his goodness. And we, like I said, we painted this picture. Some churches painted this picture of this teddy bear in the sky of a, of a, of a father, of a God, and, and, and they skip the real image that we see in Scripture. We are to fear God out of reverence of who he is, as we see in the Scripture. Just, just God showing up creates a deep, reverent fear in us. But there's another aspect that drives fear in the heart of sinful man, and that is his holiness. No other attribute of God has the emphasis that his holiness does. It is this attribute, along with his majesty, that is to cause the deepest reverence in our hearts. This is what Isaiah experiences in Isaiah 6 that was read just a moment ago. Actually, let's, let's turn there, Isaiah chapter 6. is in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings which covered his, their face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I like the New King James translation, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm not going to exhaust this text. If you want, man, read, read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. He does an amazing job. But R.C. Sproul calls this encounter um, tr uh, a traumatic, the trauma of holiness, sorry, the uh, trauma of holiness. And it's because of this traumatic experience that Isaiah has 
that changes the course of his life forever. Isaiah experiences what the Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai. But he is by himself. He is in a temple. And I can only imagine, I mean, our, our imagination doesn't do it justice, I'm sure. But I'm sure when he looks up, he sees probably the temple roof just ripped off or gone. And he sees God great in his majesty and his robe the train of his robe fills the temple which is which is reference to his dominion and he sees god in his glory and his holiness and he sees these beautiful angels that are declaring over and over again the holiness of god that they can't even look upon it they must cover their eyes and then the whole earth is filled with his glory. And the temple shakes. And R.C. Sproul talks about that. He says, man, the glory of God is so great that even inanimate objects know to tremble before him. And I love that. And the whole temple is shaking. And I can imagine Isaiah on his knees as he sees this magnificent image of God in his glory. How insignificant, how small he must have felt at that moment. I'm going to tell you something about myself that up until a couple of days ago, not one person knew about me, not even Lily. It's not super secretive or anything like that. I just never felt the need to bring it up. Um, I ended up telling her because I, Lord, I said, look, babe, I want to be talking about this in church, and I don't want people to know something about me that you don't know. And you'd be like, what the heck? I was about to ask. <laughs> so I told her. I said, you're the first person to know. I said, you right now, you're the first and only person to know this about me. Um, I have a, uh, a weird phobia, which I think just in recent years got a, a name for it. Uh, it's called thalassophobia. And to be honest, I cannot explain it to you. But what it is and, and how it's described is a a fear of emptiness, and usually it's conveyed with the ocean. I'm not afraid of the ocean, don't get me wrong. But it's a fear. When I was young, I went to the YMCA with a friend. I think like 10 years old. And I, and it's the biggest pool I've ever seen, Olympic-sized pool, so deep, and, and I'm, I'm sure if I go there now, I'm like, oh, that's not that big. But at the time, man, it was huge. And, and I got up on the, the high dive, and I jumped in, and I did the, I did the toothpick, you know, to see how, how far down I could get. And I didn't even get down to the bottom. But I remember nobody else was in the pool. My friend was still on, up on the deck. And, and I remember, like, I, I looked down and still see, like, so much emptiness and vastness between me and the bottom. And I look, and I see out in the water, and just vastness, and behind me, vastness. And, and I just felt small. And I... Anxiety quickly overwhelmed me, and I had to get out. And, um, you know, I saw a picture of a diver next to one of these huge shipment container boats, right? And he's next to the propeller. Of course, it's not going, but he's next to the propeller. And the propeller itself is probably the size of this whole shopping complex. And, you know, laying, on it, laying down flat, it's probably still three to four stories high. You know, there's just the propeller. And he's next to this huge boat, and it's just this little tiny guy in the ocean next to this propeller and huge boat. 
and I get anxiety looking at that. When I see um, you know, divers in the middle of the ocean and this huge whale comes next to them, I get anxiety looking at that. It's a, it's a feeling of, of feeling small and feeling insignificant and, and getting lost in vastness. I did a pretty good job describing that, actually. Um, may not make sense, you may think I'm crazy, but I just get this overwhelming fear. And it's not just the water. I remember, I think it was actually at a youth at Big Valley, someone showed a video, and it showed you know, a person, and, and it spanned out, and it showed like, the United States, and it spanned out, and it showed the world. Then it spanned out, and it showed our solar system. Then it spanned out, and it showed our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And then it spanned out again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And all the while, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, gets nothing to be but a dot, a speck. And all these other specks the video points out are all galaxies. Same in size or if not bigger. And all these are just specks. And it just keeps expanding, showing us how great our universe is, how vast our universe is. And I get that feeling of anxiety, like, oh my gosh, how small I am. Isaiah sees a God, the God, who is able to hold the universe in the palm of his hand. He gets an image of a God who says of this universe that we, we can't even begin to understand its vastness and its complexities. Even with all of our modern science, we are just barely tipping the iceberg of, of our understanding of our universe. And God says, this universe that you barely understand, I created by speaking it into existence. This universe so complex, it was easy for me to create it as it is for me to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the God Isaiah sees. This is the God that you just got done singing songs to. This is the God who, if you're in Christ, is your God. To know that he holds the universe in the palm of his hands and shivers. Literally, when I was writing that, I did get a shiver down my spine. When I think of the vastness and the greatness of God, I get that anxiety. I think all of us would experience the lassophobia when we stand in the presence of this mighty God. And to know that this is the God who is holy. Isaiah sees holiness as it truly is, and he sees God. And because he can see God and he understands he sees true holiness, he now can see himself and see how unholy he is. Of all Israel, if anyone was a righteous and a holy man, it was the prophet Isaiah. I'm sure he saw himself as a holy and righteous man. But then he gets a glimpse of true holiness, of this true God, and he realizes this is the God that I sin against. This is the God Cameron sins against. This is the God in whose law I transgress. This is the God who, when we, when we sin, 
And before we come to Christ, we have put ourselves in enmity against. Talking about the fear of the Lord makes people uncomfortable, angry. Absolutely. Absolutely. This perfect and holy God is the standard by which he and we are compared. And that strikes fear in us when we realize that is the standard. God is the standard in which we are held against, of perfection, of holiness. Then we see just how far short we come. As I said, Isaiah thought of himself to be a righteous man. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with another, they are without understanding or wisdom. There's always somebody worse. When I first bought my home, we did the, we did the one thing everybody does before they move inside, they paint. Bruce and Ann will appreciate this. And I told Lily, I don't want to go crazy with any colors. I just want white. And she's like, okay, well, let's go look at white. And, and what color white? <laughs> white. Just, I just want white. And, well, do you want off-white? Do you want eggshell white? Do you want milk bubbles white? Which is the color we end up going with. That's why I know it. What are you talking about? I just want white. I don't know if it was her or myself, and then someone, you know, you mean white? Oh, man. I was way off. It's not even white. It's a beige. It's when we think our carpets aren't too bad until we move the couch, right? Like, oh, my gosh. I got even carpets. It's so disgusting. We do this today and compare ourselves to others, and, and it's no wonder we, we don't fear God's holiness. It, you know, we look at others and say, man, you know, we're like the, like the Pharisee who says to the, about the tax collector, thank you, Lord, I'm not like this guy. But the tax collector sees himself in light of God, and he says, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding of who God is and who we are. And this is what the Word tells us. But we want to we skip this and, and concentrate on things like the love and mercy and grace, which are so great, which, are, which is so vital and, and so necessary and so essential in our understanding of God. But if we skip the fear, we won't understand those other areas as we should. We won't, we won't appreciate and cherish them as we should. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now I want to look at the second part of this verse here. All those that practice it have good understanding Notice that second part there. All those that practice it have good understanding. It is so common for us to look at this verse 
and say to yourself, I remember trembling and, of God and, and being confronted, confronted on my sin and, and, and having that fear. I remember experiencing that when I first became a Christian. It is easy for to look at this verse and say, okay, then they're done that, now what? This has the gospel. We look at the gospel, okay, Jesus came, he died, gave us, you know, atoned for our sins, gave us, imputed his righteousness. Okay, I got the gospel, now what? Whereas that is just the beginning. And it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have good understanding. When we hear the word practice, what do we, what do we think of? What word comes to mind? Is it not repetition? This is not an area that we just get to move past, but it's something we grow in. The more, and it's a, it's a reciprocating thing, you know, when I have the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom, and the more I grow in my understanding and knowledge of God, the more my understanding and knowledge of His holiness grows, which means the more my fear and reverence toward Him and, and, and I understand through the, the word that who I am as a sinner, all that grows and, and contributes back to that reverence and deepens that reverence. And the more deeper reverence I have to God, the more I go back to his word. And the more I go back to his word, the deeper my reverence goes. And it's a continual growing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we walk around cowering about, fearing God is going to show up and devastate us. But to practice the fear is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2.12. When he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, work for, you can't work out something you don't already have. Work out. You have the salvation, now let it grow. And do it in fear and trembling. Understanding who you are and who God is. We walk in that fear and knowledge of that fact. About a year ago, I looked all the way back to when I first started Facebook. My first post. I was appalled. I don't remember being that guy. And a fear came over me when I saw those. I deleted them so I can't go back and look at <laughs> But I, I, prom- I literally saw these posts and I was just disgusted with myself and I looked at it with fear and I'm like, I don't want to be that guy ever again. I don't remember being that guy. I don't remember. Look at the way I... I talked, look at the way I conducted myself, look at the things I said. What lack, what, what a reverence I had. God, please don't let me go back to that. That is walking in the fear and practicing. Knowing the deeper I come in my knowledge and understanding of God, the more I see of his holiness and disdain and hatred of sin. And I realize that in my flesh and who I am as a human being is naturally a sinner and is prone to sin. Should create some trepidation within me. I, uh, I know when I mentioned the old um, Jesus is my homeboy thing, we you know, all kind of shook our heads like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's so stupid. 
But how many of us actually kind of have that same attitude? We walk out of the secular through those doors into the holy without any thought. Saying to ourselves, hey, everyone, hey, Phil, yeah. God, we, we come in late. We, 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 and God forbid we, we, we miss our, our cup of coffee. We, we walk out during songs. We, we check our, our, our phones um, during, during songs. We, we, our, you know, our lips are, are singing songs, but our minds are far from them. We, we practice a reverence, do we not? And I say this to myself. I was convicted writing this sermon. And I will be honest, because I love all of you, and, and I wish everybody was here, but sometimes it scares me how quickly all of us get up to, the communion, to go to that communion table and how quickly we grab the, the elements and how quickly we sit down and, and take them. Do we pause to think of who it is we are coming before? When we sing these songs to God, do we, do we imagine our voices going down the corridors of heaven and approaching this throne of grace? Do we realize who it is we are worshiping, who we're speaking to? And some of us, you know, our, our minds are on right now, maybe the things after church, what we got to do, maybe the game that's on, or, or the, the errands we got to run, or the people we got to visit, or what restaurant we're going to after church. We, are, you know, like I said, we check our phones. Some of us are drawing as the word of God is proclaimed. And we, we quickly forget. And we quickly have our minds elsewhere. Where is the church's reverence today? Are we practicing this reverence? Think of the early church in Acts. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5? When both lie about how much they sold the land for so that they could keep the prophets but still be regarded as ones that gave everything, they lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter tells Ananias, you have not lied to man but to God. It's one thing if you lied to man, but your irreverence, your lack of fear would not be overlooked. Your irreverence and lack of fear of God would not be overlooked. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down dead. And the very next sentence, in that same verse 5, he falls down dead. And then his wife comes in, same thing happens to her. And what does it say in the very, very, very same verse at the end of that sentence? And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Think if you were a congregate in that church. 
Think if you witnessed this. Think if you were just outside. And saying, what's going on there? Oh, man, that, that Peter guy's really giving it to him. He's yelling about something. Whoa! Just died. Yeah, he lied to God. Ooh. Think of maybe the adulterer that was in the congregation at that time, or the idolater, or drunken. going to think twice before approaching the throne of God, right? Think of the people outside talking. And people say, I'm going to go check out that church. Like, that's fine if you want to check that church out, but let me tell you something. You better be serious. People are straight up dying in there. If you want to go check it out, man, I, that's fine, but I'm telling you, you better be serious when you walk through those doors. You better be reverent. Because their God doesn't play games. Nadab and Abihu. God says, this is the fire I prescribed in my worship. They said, well, I'm going to try something else. Gone. I will be regarded as holy. God says. And Acts chapter 9, verses 31, you know, four chapters later, Luke writes, the church walked in fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit. Didn't end there with Ananias' fire. They continued to walk in this fear and knowledge of the God in whom they served. We must understand that, yes, God, because of Christ, what a joy we have that we have the mercies and grace of God. But we must not forget that he is still our judge. When Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That makes me think. That makes me quiver a little bit about some of the things that have come through these lips. A.W. Tozer writes, That makes me both love him and fear him. I love him because he is my savior, and I fear him because he is my judge. As I start to wrap up, I wanted to say one thing that I I found as I was talking about this. One thing I discovered was that our fears, not necessarily phobias, but legitimate fears, that if they were to occur to us, they would affect us the next day and so on, our greatest fears are always, or often, if not always, connected with that which we love and cherish most. Think about what you're afraid of. The doctor coming in, saying the word cancer. Losing your job and can't being able to provide for your family. Losing your home. Losing a child. Those are the, I would say, some of the greatest fears I think we as as Americans face and we have. And all those are connected with things that we care most about. And it's not necessarily wrong to fear losing your child. and That's natural. But my point is that, that our fears, our greatest fears, are usually connected with that which we love and care for most. And we, if we as Christians 
are to cherish and love God more than all things. Should not our greatest fear be sinning against him? Should not our, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to take away from the work of the cross. We have the cross. And, and praise God for that, because without it, we are without hope. But it should still be our greatest desire to please our Father. A lot of us even have that fear of disappointing our own parents, of disappointing and having that look of a disappointment on our spouses or our parents or even our children. How much more should we have the fear of sinning against God, of, of transgressing God's law? You know, and, and we become numb to this. And as I said, praise God for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Because without it, we are without hope. But we become numb and saying, it's covered. We don't have to fear it. When actually, seeing God's hatred of sin and disdain for sin and his holiness and knowing ourselves as a sinner shouldn't make and should cause some great reverence in our hearts. It is my desire to convey the holiness and greatness of our God to all of you this morning. Because as we've seen, it is a very serious matter. But there is a beautiful side of it, as I mentioned. There is a side Think of John in Revelation when Jesus comes in his glory, and John's just like, I fell as if I were dead. Great response, perfect response. Yeah. And Jesus lays his hand on him and says the words, Fear not. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. First John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And he's talking about is, is the fear of, of condemnation, what John is talking about there. And he says, for us, we don't have to fear that. God calls us his children. Romans 8, 15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with them in order that we may also be glorified with him. God says, yes, I am a God that is not safe. But I'm a God that is good. And I have called you my child. And we have that hope. We have that assurance. We have the salvation because of the work of the cross. The work that the day before, the night before, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, stricken with fear. Fear 
taking the wrath of God. Fear of separation from the Father. Fear. In which he drank the cup of God's wrath that had inscribed on it my name. And if you're in Christ, had inscribed on it your name. And as Jesus tells, tells John, I have overcome death. I was dead, but now I am risen. Fear not. If then you are not in Christ, maybe you are questioning yourself. I always have to, you never know, only God knows the heart. But if you question your salvation, and you have a greater fear to fear than all others. It is a fear of you drinking that cup of God's wrath. A fear that should leave you trembling. Do not leave this building without seeking the mercies of God that is found in Christ alone. Be broken over this fear. And grow in this fear. For as Proverbs 19.23 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. A fear of gravity and height leads someone to respect and leads them to life. A fear of the Lord leads to life and, and, and leads to salvation. Let us grow in our reverence of our God. Now we are about to dismiss to take communion. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I will ask that we see this as a time of reverence. We see this as a time of self-examination because you are about to stand in the presence of God. We are about to sing one last song to this God. So I ask, don't, do not be in a hurry to get over there. If at all, if you have sin, confess it. Repent, turn from it. But let us take serious this reverence. Kelly, Ryan, Colin, Christina, take your time coming to the stage. Let us not be in a hurry now. Let us come to God, to his throne of grace, which we have and are able to do because of this, because of what we're about to partake in.